This is the last Sunday after Pentecost. Next Sunday, we will begin the first season of the church year, the beginning of the church year, uh, the season of Advent, which is the preparatory season for Christmas. This Sunday is called, in most places, uh, Christ the King in the liturgical churches. It's not an ancient uh, feast. Uh, The Feast of Christ the King or the Reign of Christ was promulgated in 1925 by Pope Pius XI. So just uh, as as a quick, a pop quiz, who was in power in Italy in 1925? Mussolini. So there may have been some uh, method in Pius XI's madness, he said, Christ the King is a celebration of the all-embracing authority of Christ, which shall lead humankind to seek the peace of Christ in the kingdom of Christ. So it's about uh, making Christ, putting Christ first in all things. And how we understand that uh, in our common life both together and personally, uh, internally, and so forth. Sometimes, you know, Christian people have no difficulty uh, speaking about the um, Christian origins of the United States or that uh, the kind of thing we're talking about even here is a kind of patriotic loyalty to the country. And Pius XI didn't have that in mind. What he had in mind was that we put Christ first in the midst of all of the difficulties uh, uh, that the secular powers, the the principalities and the powers uh, want us to do. And so it means that Christian people need to stand at some critical distance from uh, that particular kind of outlook. Here's the problem. Kings for Americans are not big. Right, we, we're, we're not big on kings here. Uh, I mean, there's you know certain Anglophiles who love the Queen, and we go to England and we talk about all of that. But uh, kings and queens—they're not really for us. And so when we think about the reign of Christ or the kingship of Christ, sometimes it's a little difficult to accept. So this is purely personal on my part, but what I I prefer to do is to think about the kingship of Christ that flows out of um, our corporate, personal and corporate understanding as Christians, and that we believe that it is important that we create a society where it is easier for people to be good, and that we believe that the the way in which we understand Christ's reign over us has to do with the knowledge that uh, God unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives us. And so we have a missionary work to do in this regard to tell that to people and to make sure that they understand uh, its power, its liberating power. And so on that level, uh, that might might be somewhat important. I want to say something very briefly about the reading from Ephesians, which uh, really uh, takes up the theme of Christ the King and uh, the authority of Christ from Paul's perspective. And then to say something about 
of the fairly well-known story in Matthew's gospel about the sheep and the goats and what it means and perhaps provide an interpretation that is uh, not usual when we read this particular text. Paul in Ephesians is talking about Christ as the ruler of all things in heaven and earth, that we live in the knowledge that no matter what the other, the other claims compete for our loyalty, our only and ultimate hope is in the one whom God has seated, as it says here, in the heavenly places. Elsewhere, Paul says that nothing can separate us from the love of God and the power of God. You know, when people find themselves in difficulty, I certainly know it's true in my own life, uh, that knowledge that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ can have great healing power. Or at least it can provide some level of serenity when you're going through a bad patch. And so Paul is trying to emphasize that when we think about how we understand uh, the reign of Christ. It means that whatever happens to us, the principalities and powers uh, cannot destroy us because God's fullness fills all in all. I think uh, the reign of Christ is, is, is the feast that really gives us the right attitude about the providence of God. God's abiding care for each one of us, for the creation. So, the sheep and the goats. Remember what I've been saying about these, whenever you hear Jesus do this. We need to understand what Jesus meant. We need to understand what his followers and the first Christians in the post-Easter church thought. And we need to understand something about what Matthew had in mind when he wrote his gospel and how he redacted this story, edited it, so that he was emphasizing those things that were important to him and to his community. So we have the description of the separation of the sheep and the goats, sayings about the reception of Jesus' disciples in their missionary work, allegorical interpretations of both those things, and the introduction and conclusion that is placed in the whole in Matthew's Gospel. So when Jesus spoke this, he knew what he was describing was a well-known thing taken from life in Palestine. Goats and sheep during the day are herded together. Goats are more delicate than sheep. So at night, the goats are separated from the sheep and put in a shelter. And the sheep are hardy enough to be able to stay out all night. The other thing is that in terms of the continuity of both sheep and goats, goats and sheep can interbreed, but the offspring are either deformed or they're sterile. So it is important to keep them apart at the times when it's most likely that they'll get up to something. So then he uses that as a metaphor for uh, the last judgment, that the sheep and the goats are going to be separated. The goats represent those who haven't listened 
to, to Jesus. And the sheep are the ones who have. And they're the ones who are going to be admitted uh, to the kingdom. And then he tells a story about sending out people. Uh, a king sends out people to uh, interact with, with, a, with a message to people and they're rejected. Some people will listen and some people won't listen. So he's describing a circumstance that is, it gives examples. Most preachers preach on this text about uh, the moral implications of what Jesus says in today's gospel. About looking after those who are hungry, visiting people in prison, visiting the sick, clothing the naked. That that's something that all of us up should be about as Christian people. So what I'm going to say now in no way compromises the necessity to do that or the centrality of doing that in terms of fidelity to the gospel. But what Jesus was speaking about in this particular case was something that in the ancient Near East was well known. And it's called the Shaliach Principle. Keep, you keep this on ice and you can amaze your friends about this. So let me explain it. Many biblical scholars would say that this is one of the passages that illustrates the Shaliach principle, according to which the acceptance or rejection of an accredited agent involves the acceptance or rejection of the sender, and the further assertion that acceptance or rejection of the sender will be validated at the last judgment. Jesus would have spoken this passage when he was sending his disciples out on a mission. This passage would have been interpreted as an allegory of the last judgment in the post-Easter church. So what it means is this. If I send somebody to represent me and they go to the person that they're sent to and the person rejects me, they've rejected the sender. Uh, any of you who've been in the helping professions for a while, or even not the helping professions, but are involved in certain kinds of missionary work, or even trying to sell something. My friend Ted Dumke's father said to me one time, you know, David, nothing happens in the world until somebody sells something to somebody else. Do you have any idea what he did for a living? And then, of course, we take the bridge too far, Jesus was the greatest salesman ever. But people who, who, who uh, have a certain vision or they have goals or they want to do things and they try to get people uh, interested in them or to uh, put their ideas forth and receive continuous rejection, we all know what that feels like. Or many of us know what that feels like. And how hard it is. What I think this is about is uh, this. When God's judgment and God's mercy collide, God's mercy trumps God's judgment. You hear me say this all the time. And yet reading these difficult passages about God's judgment and separation and the last judgment uh, remind us that the decisions that we and the actions in this life have consequences for us. 
Now, they, we don't have to wait for some cataclysmic moment for that to become clear because most of us have experienced circumstances where uh, our own bad behavior has put us in the soup. My uh, grandparents used to say, I've said this before, they say, you know, a lot of people create their own hell on earth. You know, I believe that, right? So you don't have to wait for the last judgment for that. But you do have to realize that what you do in this life has consequences. And these difficult biblical texts about judgment and so forth remind us uh, of that reality. And we're buoyed by the confidence that God's mercy trumps God's judgment, you know. Although there may be some things that we have to remain agnostic about. So when we think about the necessity of understanding uh, what kind of life we should live or how then must we live, uh, we need to understand that the kingdom of God has, I think, been misunderstood for a long, long time in Christianity. We have endlessly been talking about uh, the Christian life on this earth, it, fixing ourselves to get ready to go somewhere else. There's been a whole lot of work done by New Testament scholarship in the last 25 or 30 years, particularly uh, N.T. Wright, uh, who taught, he, he had, wrote a book recently called How God Became a King. And he described uh, how the kingdom of God and how it was understood by uh, the biblical writers uh, somehow went off the rails and we began to think about the kingdom of God located somewhere else. And the kingdom of God is here. And we're part of the kingdom of God. And God needs every one of us to fulfill his purposes for the cosmos. But it is absolutely necessary that we come to that knowledge. So Christian people have a missionary responsibility to say to people uh, to be the, the transparencies and reflections of God's grace that they're called to be. You hear me say over and over again, that does not mean that you need to engage in heroic activity only. But in the ordinary and commonplaces of your life, you need to um, be the church by setting an example. The best human being you can be, somebody who is uh, understanding the importance uh, of what Jesus did in his invitation to follow him. So it implies that we're on a journey. We're moving in a direction. And we're moving in a direction, or would hope that we're moving in a direction that is a godly direction, and that that can make a lot of difference. So this week, don't worry too much about whether you're a sheep or a goat. <laughs> you know, Jesus was speaking about it for different reasons. He was speaking about uh, people listening to this. And Matthew, of course, who took this, was concerned about this. His religious confreres, Jews, had rejected this message by and large. And so he said, How, what sense do I make out of the fact that uh, I believe in the Messiahship of Jesus, I am a Jew, but I understand that there's a whole lot of people that are coming into this synagogue who are Gentiles, you know? 
ethne in Greek, the nations. So he says, well, what's the Greek word for Gentile? Ethne. And we, we've heard that word, haven't we, about other things. Ethne, ethnic, right? Different. So part of the thing we need to do uh, on the Christian journey is to begin to minimize those issues. Uh, and the sense of separation may uh, be narrowed by virtue of that, the reconciling power of that. So this week, don't worry about sheep and goats. Worry about whether or not uh, you can allow the reign of Christ to dwell in your heart and animate you to uh, be one of God's people in the world. Amen.